this morning as we combine our adult youth and college Sunday schools in here this morning for this hour. I am glad you're here today as we think about the topic of how to understand the Trinity. I pray it'll be a helpful day for you, even as we, some of us who get together early on Sunday mornings to pray. I've already prayed this morning that as a result of this, the Lord would stretch us, that we would really see his beauty, his greatness. And as we look at something that is so hard for our little tiny, finite minds to understand, we'd realize how great God is and it would lead us to praise him and to worship him and just to realize how, how excellent he is. And so I pray that will do that today as we gather in the Sunday school hours, we gather in the worship hour. And so I do pray that it will do that for you as well as you see the majesty and greatness of God as we think about the Trinity. Well, I'm excited that I'm not the one teaching it this morning. And so I'm excited that we have our guest speaker, Dr. Bruce Ware here. Um, I first met Dr. Ware actually when I started seminary. In fact, he lined up a job for me at the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So before I ever started seminary, I got a phone call from a guy. I didn't know who he was. And he said, hey, I'm Bruce Ware. I'm on the admissions committee and a professor at Southern Seminary. I'm like, okay, who are you, basically? You know, I didn't realize who he was, but he became a friend to me and shaped me so much. One of my early classes at the seminary up at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville was Dr. Ware's systematic theology class. And taking that class with him just stretched me in so many ways to see the greatness of God and to see the glory of God and to see how magnificent God was. And I grew so much through that. Um, I took him again for another, for another systematic theology class. And then when it came time to do my PhD and I had my major professor, they said, you need two other professors on your committee. And I quickly ran to Dr. Ware. And so he was actually on my PhD committee um, and helped with my dissertation and thankful for his influence in my life. And so I'll mention some of the books he's written later on. So he's an author. He's a speaker. He was just in Wales in the last few months where he spoke at a conference to 850 people for a week on the providence of God. And so he's just a very gifted, articulate speaker who really has spent his, his life and his ministry of equipping people to understand who God is. And so I'm thankful for his influence in my life and his influence over so many others. And we're, we're grateful, Dr. Weirdet, to welcome you to Gateway this morning All to right. come teach us on the Trinity. Now, as you came in, hopefully you received a handout. Does everyone have a handout? If not, there is... A, there's some in the back on a music stand there and there. You'll want to hand out this morning. He's got a good bit of material to cover. <coughs> one side of the handout will be for this session. That'll be page one. And page two will be for the second, will be for the worship hour. He'll be preaching again in that one. So you want to make sure you get one of those. I'll give you all a minute to get one of those before we get started this morning because that will help you on that. I just want to remind our high school and college students after the service today, we're having a luncheon for high school and college students in the gym, pizza lunch. And it's a chance for you to ask your toughest theology questions, not to me, but to Dr. Weir today. And so um, just if there's questions you're wrestling with that you want to, that will help you as you seek to share Christ with your friends at school, as you're trying to live for Jesus on the high school and university campus, and you just have some tough theological questions your friends have been raising, <laughs> we have a chance for you to ask those uh, to Dr. Weir today. So I'd like to pray for us as we begin this morning, and then we'll turn it over to, to Dr. Weir for the day. So, Father, we are thankful that you woke us up this morning. You've given us a new day of life. Father, we're thankful for the privilege there is to join together as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning to study your word. And God, I pray this day as we think about the, the mystery of the Trinity, Lord, I pray that you would just stretch us, Lord, that you would give us understanding in the, to the depth of who you are, that God, we would see your greatness this day. And Lord, as a result of this, it wouldn't just be information for us. God, it would lead us to worship. It would lead us to praise you. It would lead us to long for you to, you to be Lord over our lives and all things. And so I pray in light of all these things that we would leave this day with a greater understanding of who you are, that we might better worship you as a result. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Ware, welcome right. to Gateway. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Grady. It is really wonderful to see Grady again. I, uh, 
just grew to love him, as I know you are as well, and uh, his lovely wife, Julia, and their three precious children. It's just wonderful to, to see them. And I know that, uh, you know, he's fairly new here still, but uh, he speaks so highly of you. I, we had dinner together last night, and, and uh, you know, you might wonder, what does the pastor say when he's uh, off with people that he can just talk to freely? And uh, the answer is he says good things. Uh, he's uh, really thrilled with the Lord's uh, leading him here, and he's so grateful for you and for the opportunity that he has to minister here. And it's exciting for me to be able to see what's going on here at uh, Gateway. So thank you for the privilege of spending this uh, morning with you and the worship service as well. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of my favorite areas. Uh, and let me just tell, tell you what happened. This was maybe 15 years ago, so it's been a while now. But I remember I was reading my Bible, and uh, I was in, in the book of Ephesians, and I, this question came to my mind as I was reading, because there was this pronoun. He, he made, you know, he, uh, <clears throat> in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. And the question came to my mind, who's the he here? You know, who, who's, who is this? Is this, uh, is this God? Well, I began looking and realized, no, it's not the one true God. It's not the triune God. It's the Father, specifically. And all of a sudden, I, I started thinking, I wonder how often that is the case, that when you come across a divine pronoun uh, in the New Testament, it's a pronoun of not God, but of the Father or the Son or the Spirit. And come to find out, it's most of the time. And so, you know, I just started reading my Bible with what, with what I call now Trinitarian lenses, put, put a new pair of glasses on uh, to look at the Bible and begin noticing the distinctiveness of the Father, Son, and Spirit as, uh, as you read the Bible. And it was eye-opening. It was just incredible to see. So much of what I'm sharing with you this morning has really come out of the Lord's kindness to me. Goodness, I've been teaching theology for over 15 years, you know, when, when this happened. And all of a sudden, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity just came alive to me as I just noticed in the Bible how many Trinitarian indicators there are, how, how many indicators there are of the specificity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So I want to just uh, unpack that with you some this morning and uh, here and then also in the service to follow. We're going to look at Ephesians 1. That's where we're going to go uh, in, the, in the sermon later on t this morning. You have the handout. Uh, the, the side that you want is the one that says the Trinity and its impact on how we uh, live together. And first of all, just a few words of introduction there. If you, if you want to understand the Trinity, I think you have to understand that there are two themes that have to come together in the doctrine of the Trinity to make sense of it. I, I think of it as, you know, visually as two pillars, two pillars that uphold this giant block doctrine of the Trinity, massive, weighty doctrine, what holds it up? And there are two pillars that have to be there. Both of them have to be there. Both of them have to be strong. Uh, both of them have to be complete in order to, to, to support this massive doctrine of the Trinity. So the first pillar you might think of as the distinction pillar, distinction, so that Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct from each other. Those three names are not like, are not like three names I have. I have more than that. My students have some names for me. I don't even want to know. But anyway, <clears throat> I have at least three names. I'm Bruce. I'm Mr. Ware. 
and, and I'm Jody's husband. Now, the thing is, anything you say about Bruce, you would also say about Mr. Ware. Anything you'd say about Mr. Ware, you'd also say about Jody's husband. So what would you conclude? Uh, Bruce is Mr. Ware. Mr. Ware is Jody's husband, right? Well, that is not the case with the Trinity. Uh, when you speak about the Father, there is at least one thing. Now, there's more than that, but there's at least one thing you'd say about the Father that you cannot say of the Son or of the Spirit. One thing you say about the Son, you cannot say of the Father or the Spirit, and likewise of the Spirit. That is, they are distinct persons. The Father is distinctly Father. The Son is distinctly Son. The Spirit is distinctly Spirit. Three personal expressions of the one undivided divine nature. So distinction is absolutely critical. If we don't have that, then we are not Trinitarian monotheists, as we are as Christians. Uh, we, we become Unitarian monotheists, right? One God but one person. That's the God of Islam. That's the God of Judaism. But the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, as we understand his revelation to be, is one God who is distinctly Father and Son and spirit. So the one God is all three together. So distinction has to be in place for the doctrine of the Trinity to be there. <coughs> but it is also a distinction that is not like, give, let me give you another not. Uh, it's, it's, it's not like Bruce, Mr. Ware, and, and Jody's husband. It's also not like three persons in front of you, uh, Peter, James, and John. Or if you grew up in the 60s as I did, Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, there, there you go. Take, take your pick of your favorite triad. It's not like that either because Peter, James, and John, Peter, Paul, and Mary, yes, they're distinct persons, but each of them has their own nature, right? Something happens to Peter, uh, uh, P Peter, James and John are just fine. Paul and Mary are just fine. Well, not really, they, they're grieving, but still, you get the point. Their, their natures are not affected by that, right? So here's the other thing. The other pillar that we have to have in place is the unity pillar. Unity pillar. A unity that marks all three as equal because all three possess the one unified divine nature. So indeed there is one God, one nature of God. Now what is the nature of God? The nature of God is the collection of all of the essential attributes of God. So when you think of God, you think of omnipotence. You think of omniscience. Uh, you, you think of, uh, of power and, and of uh, holiness and justice and righteousness, knowledge, wisdom. All of these essential attributes of God comprise the nature of God and that one nature is possessed fully by the Father, fully by the Son, and fully by the Spirit. So you don't have one nature <clears throat> divided into three equal parts, like a pie split into three pieces, right? Where you say, oh, each, each piece of the pie is equal to the other. True enough, but each is equal merely with an equality of proportionality, right? Each is equal in that each is the same proportion of the pie. Each is one-third of the pie. Well, you know, there is a sense in which the Trinitarian persons do possess an equality of proportionality. The Father is what percentage of God? One-third? No, 100% God. The Son is 100% God. 
and the Spirit is 100% God. So indeed, they do have an equality of proportionality, but that's not the most important way in which they are equal. Here's another way that things can be equal. It's like Peter, Paul, and Mary, Peter, James, and John. <clears throat> they can have an equality of nature, equality of um, same kind, right? Same kind. <clears throat> so Peter, Paul, and Mary are equal to each other. Peter, James, and John equal to each other because each of them has the same kind of nature. Peter, James, and John each is a human. So they each have a human nature. That, this is what makes us equal. You have a human nature. I have a human nature. And hence we are equal to each other, right? <clears throat> well, there is a sense in which the Father, Son, and Spirit possess an equality of same kind. The Father has what kind of nature? A divine nature. The Son has what kind of nature? A divine nature. And not likewise, the Spirit, a divine nature. So indeed, they do. Each of them has then with one another an equality of proportionality. They're each one 100% God. And each one of them has an equality of same kind. They each have a divine nature. But there is a, a kind of equality <clears throat> that Father, Son, and Spirit have that is unique to them. It is, it is uh, an equality of identity. An equality of identity where the nature of the Father is not merely the same proportion as the nature of the Son. The nature of the Father is not merely the same kind of nature as the Son. The nature of the Father, get this, is the identically same nature as the nature of the Son. The nature of the Son is the identically same nature as the nature of the Spirit. So there is one nature of God, all the, co the collection of all the essential attributes of God, and that one nature is the nature of the Father, and it is the nature of the Son, and it is the nature of the Spirit. And you see why, how important it is to have that uh, pillar in place, right? Because Trinitarian monotheism, right, means there is one God, one and only one God. <clears throat> so the monotheism part of our conviction means there is one divine nature. But there are three personal expressions of that one divine nature, hence Trinitarian monotheism, as opposed to uh, Unitarian monotheism, Islam, Judaism, or tritheism, polytheism, many gods, many different natures that are possessed by different gods. That's not our view either. <clears throat> so Trinitarian monotheism, distinct persons, but a unified nature that is possessed by each of the three persons. Now, let me give you an illustration that uh, I think will help with this. I do this with a, a bit of, um, what, um, caution, uh, just because illustrations of the Trinity are notoriously misleading. Uh, in fact, I can remember a time when I was teaching the doctrine of the Trinity to my two girls, who are now grown. Uh, we had two daughters. We have two daughters. And uh, they're now grown and following the Lord. We're so grateful for, for them, uh, grateful for God's grace at work in their lives. When they were little, I decided, uh, uh, you know, Rachel was maybe four years old and Bethany was about seven. I decided to uh, take advantage of those moments just before they went to sleep at night when they didn't want to go to bed, right, to teach them theology. I just thought, you know, why, why not? 
<coughs> you know, they, they don't want to go to sleep. They're, you know, fun-loving, giggly little girls. And, and uh, so I thought, goodness, if they don't want to go to sleep, here's a perfect time. It's good for me. It worked out just, just right for me. So I began what, what ended up being about a 10-year period of time with them of about 10 or 15 minutes each night, most nights. I mean, not every single night, but most nights. Uh, just walking them through systematic theology. So we went from bi- doctrine of the Bible to eschatology in that 10 years period of time. I just took my systematic theology notes out of my head, you know, and just ta- taught them. So anyway, so we, we, were, we were dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity. And, uh, I, you know, I was just uh, struggling to try to convey this to them. And, of course, with children, it really helps if you have, an il- if you have illustrations and stories and the like. So... And I, I just knew that the illustrations that I had heard were really good illustrations of one heresy or another, but not really good er- illustrations of the Trinity. So I prayed and I said, Lord, if there is something, would you help me know what that is? Uh, if there isn't, fine, that's okay. But if there is, I just really would love to be able to use that to help my girls get this. Well, a, a few nights later, I woke up in the middle of the night, probably 3 a.m. or so, with this idea in mind, got out of bed, wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, and I've used it ever since. So, yeah, if it works, God gave it to me. If it doesn't work, I came up with it. So th- this is how this goes, right? But in any case, here, here is, uh, here's the illustration. Imagine I have a whiteboard behind me here, and uh, on that whiteboard, I take a blue marker, and I draw a large blue circle on the board. So on the board, you have one circle that is encompassed by a blue line. Now I take a red marker and I overlap exactly the blue circle. I overlap exactly the blue line and I draw now on the whiteboard a red circle. So the red circle, because it overlaps exactly the blue, the red circle is the blue circle, but the red line is not the blue line. So now I take another, say a green. I take a green marker and overlap exactly the blue and the red that are up there. So now you have on the board one circle. That one circle uh, is encompassed by three distinct lines. So that the red circle is the blue circle, the blue circle is the green circle, but the red line is not the blue line, the blue line is not the green line. Each of those lines represents a distinct expression of that one circle. One circle expressed three ways. And, and yet one circle that, that, uh, in which the green and the blue and the red circle are identical as it relates to what they encompass. Okay, that, I think it's something like that that we have with the Trinity then. One divine nature that is completely possessed, fully possessed, uh, indivisibly possessed by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit. So distinction, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct personal expressions. So unlike, you know, this is one of the drawbacks with this illustration is that it doesn't indicate anything personal. It's just a, you know, a geometric figure as it were. Uh, but, but in the Trinity, you have three personal expressions of the one undivided divine nature. Think with me of John 1.1. I mean, you realize how important these two pillars are, these, these two themes of distinction and unity or equality are. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Which theme? 
distinction. Do you see it? There, there is the word and he is with God. The two are distinct from each other. They're with each other, but they're distinct from each other. But then the last phrase, and the word was God, equality, unity, identity. They comprise the one God. So both distinction and equality have to be understood then for the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, here's a, a summary paragraph uh, on, your, on your handout under capital letter B that I hope will make sense as we read through this, and I'll comment just a little bit as we do so. There is one God, but three personal expressions of the one eternal, undivided nature of God. By nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. Each is fully God and each is equally God as each possesses fully and eternally the one undivided divine nature. Yet each is also a distinct person. And as such, the three persons are different in relation to one another and in role. The Father as the eternal Father of the Son and sender of the Spirit has highest authority. The Son, as begotten by the Father, but co-sender of the Spirit, does the will of the Father, yet directs the Spirit. And the Spirit yields to the authority both of the Father and of the Son. Okay, now here, here we have a few other concepts that I'm, I'm bringing to bear on this. When you think of the, the Trinitarian persons, there is complete equality in nature, but their distinction, this is where really the difficulty comes in in terms of trying to comprehend in what ways are Father, Son, and Spirit distinct. The unity of Father, Son, and Spirit is easier to see. They have the same nature. They possess all of the same attributes, right? So that, that's an easier concept, I think, to get a hold of. The equality is the equality of nature. The distinction, what distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit from each other? And I think there that when you look at the Bible, and you ask this question, how is the father father in a distinct way? How is the son son in a distinct way? And so on. I think you end up seeing there are two R words that really do capture uh, the, the heart of the biblical teaching uh, of what distinguishes father, son, and spirit. The first R word is relation, right? And you can hear it specifically in the names Father, Son, right? So Father is Father precisely because he's the Father of the Son. The Son is Son precisely because he is the Son of the Father. So there is that relation that marks who each of them is. See, you need to understand, there's no God behind God here, right? It's not that Father, Son, and Spirit are names given to us that they kind of came up with for the purpose of, of trying to relate to us. No, the Father is eternal Father. He always is Father. That's as much a part of his being as the, as the nature that he possesses. The divine nature that he possesses is eternal, but so is his personhood as Father. In fact, the early church came to the conclusion that the reason the Father is the eternal Father of the Son... Now, this is, this is difficult. The rest has been easy so far, right? 
this is difficult, but the church came to the conclusion, uh, some of you may have heard of the Council of Nicaea that met at 325, and they came to the conclusion at that council that the best way to understand why the Father is eternal Father is because the Father eternally begets the Son. And the reason the Son is the eternal Son is because he's eternally begotten of the Father. Now, the begetting idea, of course, which is in John's Gospel, it's, kind of, it's been taken out of our, our translations in recent years, and I think it ought to be put back. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I'm pretty sure, on the basis of the best scholarship out there, uh, that... Uh, Sadly, it was a mistake to take begotten out. There, there, this is a footnote. Do you know what a footnote is? Down at the bottom of the page, you know, a little bit extra stuff, right? So here's a footnote. Um, several years ago, a, a group of very, very fine New Testament scholars uh, studied the word monogenes. That's the Greek word that's used, that has been translated begotten. And they became convinced that that word roots in a Greek word that refers to uniqueness or one of a kind, right? So they, they retranslated John 3.16 and other verses like that. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, or, you know, his only son, kind of the uniqueness idea, <clears throat> and, they, and they dropped out begotten. Well, more studies have been done in recent years, and, oops, uh, come to find out probably that was a mistake, that... Uh, in fact, it, it, the, the word monogenes rather roots in the term that means to beget. So probably the, the King James, the New American Standard that I use, was right uh, to begin with in, uh, in using begotten. Okay, end of footnote. So, uh, that, but that was one of the reasons that the early church thought this way. Why, why is the father the father? Because he eternally begets a son. But don't think now that begetting means there was a time that the son came into being in the way we think of begetting, you know, like giving birth, right? There's a time when this person comes into being. That's not the case with the Trinity. So the, the son is eternally begotten. That is, there never was a time when he was not. Uh, he is always from the Father. I think a, a biblical concept uh, or actually phrase that carries this idea is found in Hebrews 1 where it speaks of the Son as the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. You hear it there? The radiance of His glory. So everything the Father is, the Son is. Except for being Father, right? Except for being Father. Because the Son is Son. He's the Son of the Father, but He is the representation of the Father. So the Father begets the Son, <coughs> the Spirit has been understood in the history of the church as proceeding from the Father and the Son. Okay, so all that to say that relation is, is a key category for understanding who Father, Son, Spirit are and what distinguishes them from each other. So the, <coughs> excuse me. So the Father eternally begets the Son and hence he is the Father of the Son. The Son eternally begotten of the Father Hence, he is the son of the father, eternal father, eternal son in that relationship. Now, I would take it one step further and to say because of that relationship of the father is the father of the son, the son is the son of the father, 
See if this makes sense. Doesn't that then mean that the father, as father, always acts in a way that befits who he is as father? The son as son always acts in a way that befits who he is as son. How do you see that worked out in the Bible? Well, for example, the father creates through the son, right? The father sends the son. The father commands, the son obeys. Where do you ever find in the Bible a reversal of this? Where do you find the son doing his work through the father? The son sending and the father going. The son commanding and the father obeying. Where do you ever see that? And the answer is you don't. You know why you don't? Because father is father and he acts like father. Son is son and he acts like son. So indeed what you see in the Bible is this, is, is this um, inviolable relation. Father is always father. He always acts like father. Son is son. He always acts like son. And they always are in that relationship, which then gives, gives rise to the second R word that just flows right out of it, right? Role. Relation gives rise to role. Because the father is the father and always acts as father, then he carries out the role of father. Because the son is son and he always acts as son, he carries out the role of son. And so here you see in the Bible then this this uh, uh, just very clear picture, a uniform picture of how Father, Son, and Spirit work. And among the things that you find in the Bible that is quite shocking to a lot of people, then is this, that there is a built-in structure within the doctrine of the Trinity. So in God, because Father is eternal Father and always acts as Father, because son is eternal son and always acts as son, that the roles they carry out then are roles that are within a structure of authority and submission. So the father sends, the son goes. The father commands, the son obeys. The father designs, the son implements the design of the father. So indeed, in the very structure of the Trinity, amazing, there you have this authority submission structure that is exhibited in God. I mean, it takes your breath away to realize that. Okay, so I want to now walk through some of the practical implications of when we see this understanding of God in the way the Bible depicts God to be, the father-son-spirit relationship, some of the implications and impact to our lives. So I'm now at Roman numeral 2. impact of the doctrine of the Trinity for how we should live together. The first point is this, eternal relationality, that's a, a code word for Trinity, right? Eternal relationality calls for and calls forth a created community of persons. Isn't that interesting that that's, that's what God creates? A created community of persons, not isolated individuals who exist in close proximity but interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. Think of it, my friends. Would you agree with me? God is perfect. 
Do I have an amen on that one? God is perfect, indeed. How, who, who is God who is perfect? He is Father and Son and Spirit eternally together in a social relationship in which fellowship, love, uh, care, uh, communication takes place eternally within the Godhead. So perfection is not isolated individual apart from anyone else. That is not perfection. Perfection is individuals in social relationship with one another. Isn't that just staggering? I mean, it really does go against much of our Western culture that puts, kind of elevates the superhero, right? The, the, the independent individual who doesn't need anyone else's help, who can do it all himself or herself, right? We, we have that kind of mentality in, in Western culture anyway, where it is that independent, isolated individual that is perfection. And you might even think that when you think God is perfect. You might be thinking God, the one God, is perfect. That, that might even reinforce that idea of individual apart from all other, is perfect. But remember that one God is only, always, eternally, one only as he is three. Father, Son, and Spirit. So indeed, I mean, honestly, this is apologetically, this is a big boon, a big, uh, what's the word I need here? I, I should be careful. Um, boon, boon. Not boom, not, not like explosion. A big boon for the Christian faith in relation to Islam. I mean, the God of Islam is this monad, this individual with whom there is no interaction for eternity. How does that God love? He cannot be love because there's, apart from creation, nothing to love. But within the trinity of the Christian God, we understand Father loves Son. Son loves Father. Spirit activates love within the, the triune persons of the Godhead. And so there is love and warmth and fellowship and communication that marks perfection, that marks what it is to be the best, the greatest, the, 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 the supreme being is one in which there is this relationship with one another. This is why then when God creates us, we read in Genesis 2, this is not Genesis 3 after sin has taken place. In Genesis 2, we see these remarkable words, I mean kind of stunning, shocking words where God says to Adam, it is not good. What? Not good? This is in the creation of God, right? I mean, it's so striking because in Genesis 1, every day, you know, it was good. It was good. It was good. You come to Genesis 1.31, God looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then in Genesis 2, it's not good. What is not good? For man to be alone. Alone is not good. Alone, independent from others, so that there is not shared love, share, shared experience, uh, shared labor. Alone 
independent, not in community, not in social relationship, is not good. What is good? Ah, to, to, to have another with whom you share responsibility, share life and the rest. So I just, you know, goodness, uh, uh, Grady was just saying to me earlier that uh, your church has been marked for many, many years by having cell communities or small groups, whatever you wish to call them. And, and you, th- you think, that is so good. It is so wise to do that as kind of a, a programmatic way you can facilitate, help facilitate what God intended us to, to, to be as he created us. And that is those who are in social relation to one another, in a relationship of, of uh, mutual encouragement and support and accountability and, and uh, uh, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. And you know, all these things, you realize that this is why the body of Christ why we all need one another, right? I mean, the body language in the New Testament really is just an outworking of what God designed in creation. And that is for us to realize the interdependence that we have not only with, with God, the dependence we have upon him vertically, but the interdependence we have with one another. We need one another. And so, indeed... I, th- I just think it's remarkable to realize that our, uh, God's desire for us to be in community is not a concession to our weakness. Now, we are weak. It's not a concession to our finitude. We are finite. I mean, it might have been that, but it's not. It's not. What it is rather is, oh, it takes your breath away. What it is rather is the finite expression of infinite perfection. God, who is a social unity of Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal relation as, as, as those persons relate to one another, in, uh, communicate uh, and, uh, and have fellowship with one another for eternity. So amazingly, this is a good thing that we need to cultivate as Christian people. And, and realize this is how we thrive as Christians. I think it's fair to say the individual, including the individual Christian, who thinks in terms of I'm on my own, I do it myself, I don't need other people, is just bound to be heading for problems. Now, it's not that we don't have problems when we're in community. Of course we have, but guess what we have? Support, help. We, 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 we have admonishment, uh, we, we have uh, uh, encouragement, we have correction, right, as we do that together. So I think this is one of the most remarkable <coughs> lessons we see from the doctrine of the Trinity. Eternal relationality, that's God, calls for and calls forth a created community of persons. Okay, number two. Oh, I love this second point. This is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, The relationships in the Trinity exhibit so beautifully, now notice this, a unity. Are you you musical out there? If you're musical, it helps on this one, okay? Uh, the, The relationships in the Trinity exhibit so beautifully a unity that is not unison. What's unison? Where we all sing the same line of notes. You know, so when we sing congregational music together, 
uh, we, we generally sing the melody line, the, the same line of notes. Uh, every now and then, uh, if, if someone is able to, they break out in harmony, right? You know, but you know, some other line of notes. But generally, unison is when we all sing the same line of notes. So here we have in the Trinity a unity that is not unison and a distinction that is not discord. What is discord? I'll tell you what discord is. Three three-year-olds sitting on the same piano bench, banging away on the keys. That is discord. Amen? Oh, yes. Okay, so here, here we have a unity that is not unison, a distinction that is not discord. What is that? Where do you have a unity that is not unison, but a distinction that is not discord? Harmony. You see it? Harmony. Where? There are different lines of notes. I mean, goodness, you, you need to sing the tenor line or you need to sing the alto line or what, whatever the case might be. You know, if, that's your, if that's your line of notes, you need to sing that because it's only when you have that tenor line and that bass line and that alto line along with that, that uh, melody line all together, do you have the richness, the fullness, the textured uh, sound that's there. But, but those, each of those lines of notes is written specifically to complement the melody line. So the melody line still is the dominant line. That's why we end up singing that when we sing unison. But when we sing harmony, there's this enhancing that takes place, this beautification that takes place, this, this marvelous textured uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, beauty. Have you ever been heard of, um, say, a a trio or a quartet or something where they begin singing in unison, say the first verse, they sing all together in unison, and then all of a sudden at an appointed time, they break into harmony. Oh, my. It's so rich, so beautiful, right? So here is the Trinity, a beautiful expression of harmony. You see it? <clears throat> where each sings his own line of notes. Now, let me just push the metaphor a little bit further. Who writes the composition? I think the Father does. The Father does. The Father is the one who designs designs everything that takes place in creation and redemption. I mean, how many times did Jesus say, I did not come to, to do my own will, but to do, to do the will of him who sent me? Right? Do you hear it? Right? Uh, there, there is this, this sense in which the Father is the one who designs, who, who, who envisions what the creation should be and says to his Son, Son, carry it out. Spirit, enliven what the Son creates. So Son and Spirit are agents of the Father in bringing to pass what the Father Creates. Here, here are the words in, just on, on that creation, here are the words of 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us there is but one God, <clears throat> the Father, listen to the prepositions. There is for us but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, uh, and, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. You hear it? From the Father through the Son. Ah, amazing. How does redemption take place? From the Father, through the Son. Yeah, 
indeed. The Father sends his son. So <clears throat> I would argue the composer of, of that, that beautiful trio, that, that, that uh, beautiful composition for Father, Son, and Spirit to sing is, is composed by the Father, but the melody line, who sings the melody line? The Son. He gives to his Son that place where he has the dominant line of notes. The others, even the father's, the, the line of notes the father writes for himself, he writes in a way that supports the son. You know, look at my son, follow him. I mean, we, we just think the saving work was the father's work through the son, but what, when we're called to faith, we're called to believe in Christ. We're called to follow Christ. We're, we're not fatherians. We're not spiritans. We are Christians. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, the, the father designs to put his son in this highest place. You know, it just, it just strikes me that this is almost a, a point that's worth making separate from what I have there already. The point is this. Now, what you see in the leadership of the Father, the authority that the Father has, <coughs> is one in which he seeks to put another, not himself, in the spotlight. By his design, at the end of history, every knee bows and every tongue confesses, not the, that the Father is Lord, right, but that... Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2.11. Now, to the glory of God the Father, of course, because who designed it? Whose will did the, did the Son accomplish? Whose work did the Son carry out? The Father, right? So indeed, to the glory of God the Father, but, but the focus is upon Jesus. The spotlight, as it were, is on Jesus by the Father's design. When is the last time you saw a leader whose purpose it was to design some project such that when it was accomplished and the credit is given, that another not himself, by the leader's design, that another not himself would be the one in the spotlight receiving the accolades for job well done. Amazing, isn't it? This is a leadership that is humble. That, you know, that, that's a word I've learned to associate with God that I didn't used to think applied, but it does. There's a humility in how the father conducts his leadership. There's a humility in, in the son's submission to the father, a humility in the spirit. Get this, always being third, and he doesn't mind it. You know, the spirit doesn't say, you know, wow, the day's got to come, right, when I get to be the one, you know, at, at the top of the heap. I get to be the one in charge here. No, never, never. For eternity, never. And he doesn't begrudge it. He, he, he finds his greatest joy in advancing the purposes of the Son to the glory of the Father. So there is this humility within the Godhead. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? Okay, so harmony, moving on. Number three, a most remarkable characteristic of, 
Trinitarian relations is the presence of an eternal relationship of authority and submission. Authority and submission are good for they are expressive of God. Isn't that amazing? Authority and submission are good for they are expressive of God. That is, here's an implication that is just countercultural, life-transforming. It is, ah, I left out a word. I need the word as right there. It is as, shucks, it is as godlike to submit with joy and gladness to rightful authority as it is godlike to express wise and beneficial rightful authority. It is as godlike to submit with joy and gladness to rightful authority as it is godlike to express wise and beneficial rightful authority. Now, we knew the last part of that sentence, didn't we? We've always known, yeah, it's godlike to express wise and beneficial rightful authority. That's God. But here is God also. It's just as godlike to submit with joy and gladness. The Son always, always does the will of the Father. The Spirit always serves the Son in carrying out the will of the Father. It is amazing. So given that principle, let's move on. Four and five really do just expand on that, that principle. Uh, Number four, equality of essence then does not conflict with distinction in roles. In God and among us, both must be embraced and honored. I remember years ago when I was a student at Fuller Seminary, I did my PhD at Fuller, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, uh, is a place where they had rejected inerrancy uh, altogether, and, uh, and they also had, uh, were, were very strong advocates of what is sometimes called the egalitarian position on the role of women. That is, there's full equality of men and women in nature, which of course we agree with, but in, in role. So, the, so they were very supportive of ordination of women to be pastors and mutual submission in the home and the like. <coughs> well, so at Fuller, I became aware for the first time of this argument. Paul Jewett, who taught there, wrote a book on the, the role of women, kind of the first book defending the egalitarian view that came out was his book, Man as Male and Female. And in that book, he says this, if a wife is to submit to her husband because she is a woman, then she is by nature as a woman inferior to her husband. What's wrong with that argument? Look at the Trinity. The son by his sonship submits to the father. He's the son of the father. What does that mean? Well, it means he always acts as son. Always. It's not, not an exception to this. They don't swap roles at some point. He's always son. <coughs> and hence, he always submits to the father. And yet, full equality with the father. The father and the son and the spirit possess the identically same divine nature. So indeed, you can have together simultaneously equality of nature and distinction in roles, including a distinction marked by authority and submission. How about that? So it it is so liberating to see this. I think for Christian women uh, in, in your marriages to realize the fact that God calls you to submit to your husband does not indicate, does not indicate 
an inferiority to your husband. It does not indicate, gentlemen, a superiority to your wife. And, and we just, we've got to get over this kind of false connection of authority and submission indicating superiority and inferiority. Not true. I mean, we actually know that, don't we? I mean, is, is the secretary of the president of the company inferior because she's the secretary and he's the president? I mean, really? I mean, if, if two murders took place, you know, both of them are killed, the president and the secretary, is, uh, is his life that was taken of greater value than her life? We know that's not true. I mean, we, we kind of know this, but there's something in us that just thinks, oh, well, if you have to submit, that means you're inferior. It is not true. Look at the Trinity. It is an incredible correction to that misunderstanding. In fact, when you look at the Trinity, a wife submitting to her husband is in the role of the son submitting to the father. There is a dignity, a nobility, a, 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 a splendor, a, a majesty, a greatness that goes with properly understanding what it means to submit. And by the way, it's not just there, right? It's... Uh, employees to employers. Uh, it's citizens to the state. I mean, all of us in one way or another you know, are in some relation of submission to some, uh, some authority out there. doesn't mean inferiority. What it means is divine calling to carry out that role in a way that honors Christ. That's what it means. Just as the one in authority is, is called also divine calling to carry out, that, carry out that role in a way that honors Christ. So, so indeed, these are, uh, these are co-extensive realities. Uh, equality of nature and distinction in role. And you see this in creation. So, number five, <coughs> marriage and the church are arenas where the triune being of God is expressed in physical, visible form. It is no wonder that male-female relationships are being assaulted so vigorously. So let me just remind you, in Genesis 1, uh, the, the pattern that goes through the, the six days of creation up until the creation of man and woman, the pattern is that God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, right? That's all the way through. Then God said, let there be. When you come to verse 26, then God said, it breaks the pattern. Then God said, let us, us, let us make man, singular, make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here you have in that incredible passage the juxtaposition of singular and plural for God, singular and plural for the creation of humans, right? So I think what God is conveying is there's something about my plural, plural being, Father, Son, and Spirit, 
that is pictured, imaged. Let us make man in our image that is imaged in his creation of the man and the woman. So what, what, what would be imaged? Well, here's what is imaged. Equality. So, so indeed, male and female, equal. Image of God. Full dignity. Full honor. Full respect. Full value. Both of them equal value before God. Oh, my how important it is to see that images, Father, Son, and Spirit of equal value, equal worth, equal fullness, equal deity, imaged in equal humanity, man, male and female. But here's the other thing that's pictured, imaged, distinction, right? Father, Son, Spirit, I'll come to that in a second. Father, Son, where... There's an authority of the Father that, that is reflected in the, in the willing and joyful submission of the Son, reflected now in the male and female, so that God intentionally creates him first, then her. God intentionally creates her through him. God, God intentionally gives to Adam the, the privilege of naming his wife, both before and after the entrance of sin. He first names her woman. Actually, in Hebrew, it is Isha. You remember that's the end of Genesis 2? Uh, he, he took a rib from the man, formed it into a woman, brought her to him. Wouldn't you love to see the look on his face? I hope there's a video uh, replay of that in heaven. I want to see it. The look on his face. Oh, my goodness. There, there she is. She's yours. And he looks at her and he says, she is bone of my bone. You, you hear what that means? She has my nature. My nature, but she has it from me. She depends upon me, but in depending upon me, she is fully like me. You hear both of those? Equality, but distinction. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. You know, in English, we have a very close parallel. Woman, because she's taken from man. Very close, very close to the Hebrew. So indeed, there is this, there, there is this intention of God to create them in a way in which it is evident that there is what might be called male headship in that relationship from the get-go by the created design of God. And by the way, if you wonder, are you making this up? You know, are you just, you just kind, of, kind of spinning this out somehow? This is exactly the way Paul thinks. So when he talks about role of women in relation to church and, and, and her responsibilities and the like in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, this is what he points to. These exact features. It was the man who was created first, not the woman. And she came from him. The, the, the man did not come from the woman. That's how I came about, from my mother, right? I came from a woman. But in this case, it's a unique case. It never has happened before or after that the woman came from the man. Amazing. Why did he do it that way? To show, again, dependence 
upon him. So he, he has the headship. He has the, the priority in that relationship. So fully equal in essence, but distinct in roles. And what does that imitate? What is that image? God. Amazing. Now what, what about now? God is triune. Adam and Eve. Here's, here's my thought. I, I can't be dogmatic on this, but here's my thought. You remember in in Genesis 1:28, then, after he repeats, so, so God created them in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Ah, so in the created design of God, he also envisions children. But notice how those children come about. Through the husband and the wife, through father and mother, Children come about. Think of the the doctrine of the Trinity developed by the church. The father begets the son. So how does the woman come about? From the man, right? But then father and son together send the spirit. The spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So children come from the husband and the wife, the father and the mother, right? So there is this picture of Trinitarian relations and human relations of the man, the woman, and the kids that is a mirror reflection, imaging what you have in God. So it's an amazing thing to behold. But what this means, I mean, it is, it is amazing. Wow, it's just beautiful. Amazing to behold. But here, here's what it means, is that we have to uphold in our marriages and in our relationships in the church, both of these themes are so important The equality thing has to be upheld. If you ever come across a sense of male superiority, confront it. It just just cannot be. There is no rightful sense of male superiority or female, ah, what word can I use here? Degradation. You know, a a, a sense of, of being unworthy because I'm a woman. That is so far wrong. So indeed, we we must uphold this full equality, but at the very same time, uphold how beautiful it is to see that worked out in terms of of loving authority and joyful submission that reflects the Trinity. May God help us. So in in marriage and in the church, may we see that lived out. Well, I think we probably should stop here. Uh, We covered a lot of material. I just want to commend to you to read your Bibles in a, way, in a way that helps you see the Trinitarian specificity that is there. Notice what is said of the Father. And sometimes you have to work at what those pronouns mean, right? Notice what it says of the Son. Notice what that indicates of their relationship together. And then think in terms of how that should impact the way we live together as, as we reflect God who created us in his image. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have had to think through some glorious truths about who you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Had you not revealed, we would not know. Had had your word not been given to us, we would not know. But Lord, we are privileged to, to know because you have kindly made yourself known Help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of you and then grow in our living out what reflects you better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.